Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. Listeners last time will have noticed that Stephen bullied me into talking about Brexit for a whole episode. So this time I've launched a coup, seized control of the microphone and upgraded Stephen to instead academic Paula Surridge. Now any regular followers of politics on Twitter should either follow Paula or make sure they read the many excellent publications that she has appears online. But I'm really excited that you're with me today, Paula. Um, A good starting point, I guess, would be just what's your take on overall where voters are, particularly on this question of liberalism versus authoritarianism, because I know that's a key part of your research. Yeah, so I've I've long been interested in this other dimension of Mm. British politics, um, which we can loosely call liberal authoritarianism. But until quite recently, no one else was. It was only me. Um, And now, as we've shown repeatedly, this is the dimension that connects most closely with Brexit. Far more people are interested than were before. But I find myself in a slightly um, ironic position because I've spent the last 10 years telling people how important this dimension was. And now I find myself having to tell them that not to forget it is one of two dimensions. The other being the, the left-right left conventional... Right. Yeah, so the left-right dimension that that's round, settles around economics mm. and economic justice. And so while I think the, the liberal authoritarian dimension is really important, it's not the only thing, it's not the only thing in town. The left-right dimension hasn't gone away completely. And so actually what we see in the electorate is this kind of... Um, I prefer the term fragmentation to polarisation because it captures the fact that these, these two dimensions are structuring people, um, structuring positions, so that you end up with some quite um, interesting groups of voters who take different positions across these two scales. And I, I guess one of the things that certainly I think yourself, point yourself has made previously and, and others, is that if you look at that fragmentation and where the voters are compared to where the party system is, Although Liberal Democrats hold out great hope for being becoming the dominant party at the open end of the spectrum, in many ways the gap is perhaps at the authoritarian end of the spectrum, but for a sort of left authoritarianism, the sort of UKIP type approach that they played with for a little while of being obviously very hardline on the Liberal authoritarian, but also very pro-public money on the NHS and the like. Um, is that a gap that you think is still there? Is it a growing gap? It is a gap that's still there, for sure. It's a big group of voters. If you if you look at these dimensions, that group that are left-wing economically, but fairly authoritarian on social issues, are the biggest group in the population. Exactly how you estimate it will give you slightly different, slightly different exact numbers. Roughly what but number would, would you put on it? I would say somewhere around about one in five voters. Yeah. Um, are in that sort of position. And there is not a party explicitly in that position. Um, a lot of those voters turned to UKIP in 2015. Um, so far, I don't think we've seen enough of the Brexit party to know if they're going to be able to completely capture um, that space. We know we know what they stand for on Brexit, but the other dimension is, is, is obviously unclear. Um, but it, it's similar across party systems across the whole of Europe. That, that particular group of voters are just very poorly represented. Um, although, I mean, I guess at the next election we'll probably see at least three parties who are polling in double figures going after that group, because there will be uh, the Labour Party going after that group in many ways. Indeed, the fact that that's part of the current Labour coalition perhaps helps explain Labour's problems over what its line should be on Absolutely. Brexit. It's very much the, one might almost say, the Nick Timothy group, 
Uh, so, you know, the Theresa May and Boris Johnson election strategy seem to be pitched at those people, especially in the Midlands. And of course, there will be the Brexit party as well. So although you describe them as sort of slightly underrepresented, I, I guess if you're a voter and you've got three different parties trying to win you over, surely that, that's, if anything, a slightly overrepresented group. So although, the Labour, although they form part of the mm. Labour Party coalition, mm. the Labour Party don't really adopt positions in line with them in terms of that social dimension. Um, so I don't think you can quite count the Labour Party. They want their Tory. votes but aren't willing to have policies to cater to them, you mean? Yes, yes. And they don't always talk language that resonates in those kinds of... in that, in that group. Um, the Conservatives, certainly I think... Um, Theresa May probably more than Boris Johnson seemed to be trying to, to capture yeah. that vote it, you know, despite everything that came later the sort of just about managing speech on the steps of Downing Street when she became leader was certainly trying to get to that group um, Boris Johnson obviously during the leadership campaign he started making claims about taxation for high earners they're, they're not going to play well yeah. no. <laughs> amongst that group um, but the big problem they both have mm. is that those voters really are not keen on the Conservatives, mm. particularly the ones who've voted Labour in the past, mm. um, which is where um, UKIP were able to capitalise um, and where the Brexit mm. Party certainly will hope to. Um, though, again, it remains to be seen how successful their messaging actually is for those voters. Yeah, I, and on the day that we're recording this, actually, Boris Johnson had a visit to a hospital uh, judging by the lunchtime news bulletins, a not very successful visit to the hospital. But I guess that is part of trying to appeal to those voters in terms of saying that we do care about some of those issues that obviously kept being in favour of the NHS isn't, as, as it were, directly a left-right issue. But if you are trying to appeal to that group of people, showing that you don't want to take health services away from them at the very least is, is an important element. Yes, yeah, so and actually for quite a large proportion of that group, the NHS is currently their most important issue yeah. when they're asked. They don't say Brexit, they say the NHS. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if that's the, the interesting stuff around the authoritarian end of the spectrum, um, I guess the perhaps slightly naive, simplistic Lib Dem view is that at the open end of the spectrum, there is a lot of political room for the Liberal Democrats to play in, and that it's a big enough chunk of people also for Liberal Democrats to be extremely successful, and therefore, for example, not to be worried if the party is polarising people on some issues. Um, is life as simple and straightforward as Lib Dems like to tell ourselves it is, or is it a little bit more complicated and dangerous than that? It's a little bit more complicated and dangerous than that. Um, first of all, in that kind of open-end, liberal end of that scale, um, voters are particularly likely to say that they would choose from a range of parties. So we ask people how likely they are to vote for a party. Um, on a 0 to 10 scale, um, voters at that end are quite likely to give two, three, and in Scotland, four parties a, a, yeah. a score of six or more. So they're obviously quite likely to say the Lib Dems, they're also quite likely to say Labour, also likely to say the Greens and the SNP in Scotland. And Plaid as well in Wales, or do Plaid do not quite as well? Plaid as well in Wales, but not quite as well. Yeah. Um, and so that is quite intense competition for that vote. Um, and as I said at the start, the left-right hasn't gone away completely. Yeah. So to try and argue that that has gone away mm. is definitely mm. a, a danger, mm. I think. Although um, positioning as, as not as extreme as either yeah. of the others on that scale is probably quite smart. Yeah. 
in, in terms yeah. of positioning. But life, but life is more complicated than that. There are groups within that end of mm. the spectrum who I'm not quite say forgiven the Lib Dems for the coalition, but certainly haven't forgotten, and, and will be a little yeah. bit wary um, for that reason. Um, so it's not it's not quite as simple as just getting all those voters on board. In terms of size, the most liberal voters, I was looking at this earlier, comprise about 25% mm. of the electorate. But there are also some that are, if you, if you think of kind of being centrist on that dimension, yeah. <laughs> it's not usually how we apply the term centrist, but centrist on that, on that dimension, there's, there's actually another 15% of voters yeah. in those kinds of positions. And as... As Johnson moves the Conservatives away from that, then that does leave some space there, I think, as well, to get not the not the most liberal mm. voters, but but the ones who are uncomfortable with. Yeah, with and certainly the the quick bit of mental maths I was doing as you were saying that was to say, well, you add those two numbers together, that gets you about forty percent of the electorate. Obviously, a party's never going to hoover up everyone from the second it's starting. So that sounds like that's big enough for a Lib Dem plan in which a general election result of somewhere in, say, the high 20s share of the vote would be considered outstandingly successful to the party. In fact, if you play around with the numbers on various seat projection websites, you can even get a Liberal Democrat majority government creeping in once you get you know, very little over 30% of the vote. So so it, feel, it sounds like, from what you're saying, that um, although the life may be more complicated than a sort of simple Lib Dem activist happy view of the world, <laughs> that nonetheless... It is quite plausible to say there are enough voters there for a party uh, to be successful, particularly if your frame of success is being a party that got in single digits at the last general election and last one an overall majority. Um, you probably would have to, well, we might even have to add both of our ages together to get that far, <laughs> far enough back. Possibly, yes. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. And I think the other thing that um, helps uh, the Lib Dems in this, in this framework now is that those um, voters are now more geographically concentrated. Mm. Um, so because this is something that links very, very closely to education, yeah. the areas where you see lots of educated yeah. people, lots of people with degrees, um, means that you have actually got a kind of concentration of votes, rather than, as, as we all know perfectly yeah. well, you know, getting 20% mm. everywhere probably isn't going to be yeah. a great strategy. How, I wonder if you can expand a little bit on that geographic concentration, because I was quite struck when I last had a look at the Lib Dem share of the vote at the European elections and it's Chris Hanratty's estimates of what the Lib Dem share of the vote was in each Westminster constituency. So I've plotted that on the graph and also the change in the votes from the European elections compared to the general election proceeding. It was actually how relatively uniform it was. It was much more uniform than I expected. In fact, so much more uniform than I expected that when I looked at it at first, I thought, oh, I wonder if I've got this graph wrong. Let's recheck the stats. And there definitely is some variation there, but not as much as maybe I expected. Do you have a sense of how... And actually, just as a, to, to, I guess one caveat to that, of course, in part, that may reflect the sort of modelling that Chris used. Obviously, yeah, his modelling is, is extremely good, extremely expert, um, but obviously one of the risks of trying to read too much into it is you end up really discovering something about the modelling rather than the underlying reality. Um, so what's your... I wonder if you could expand a little bit on, on this idea that these liberal voters are particularly concentrated. Do you have any sort of uh, sort of measure 
that sort of helps bring to life how concentrated they are. So the thing that I would use to demonstrate mm. that as, as a kind yeah. of quick and easy yeah. and anyone can access it is to pull off the map for the revoke Article 50 petition. Yeah. And this got just over 6 million signatures, didn't it? Yeah. Which, uh, a stat I looked up the other day to check my memory was right, is more than the number of votes Liberal Democrats got at the... 2015 and 2017 general elections combined. <laughs> so it's a big, big number. Big number. Six million is a big number, big number. for the They might not all be unique people, yeah. but even if I'm yeah. only a million of them, they're yeah. um, duplicates. If you look at that, mm. you can plot university yeah. towns and cities yeah. by where the concentrations are. Um, and lots of people get excited by that and go, oh, this is about the student vote, mm. but it isn't. University towns have lots of people with degrees in mm. who work in universities. Yeah. So it's not about a kind of youth vote, mm. particularly. Um, and the Liberal Democrats in 2010, 2005 were doing mm. really, really well amongst those groups. Mm. They were the first place party amongst those yeah. groups. And particularly, actually, amongst those with postgraduate qualifications. Oh, right. So hoovering up. So, so it, it, yeah. it doesn't stop at degree level. It, yeah. it, it carries on. Um, so that concentration of vote, which has obviously accelerated in many ways since mm. 2010 as, as these as universities have expanded, I think is something that can be a real yeah. strength. And Because one thing I always wonder about those sort of petition signature maps is to what extent they reflect people sharing the petition with other people they know and whether some of the unevenness in that distribution is a reflection of, say, some bit of university being easily able to email lots of other people at the university rather than an underlying demographic. I think demographics. Yeah. signatures, that's a possibility yeah. i think when you're looking at six million the number's so big but unless so somebody's big. emailing everyone yeah. <laughs> regularly yeah. yeah um okay well that that sounds quite promising from a lib dem perspective but um but tell me why i wouldn't i shouldn't go away just thinking hurrah liberal democrats are going to sweep to 29 percent of the next election and a majority of seven in parliament <laughs> <laughs> okay I'll, I'll deal with the 29%, I think, rather than the majority yeah. of the seven. Wisely so, I think, because first past the post is, I'm not quite a lottery, but immensely hard to predict, isn't it, once you get into four or five party yeah. systems. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it's difficult enough if you're in three parties, yeah. but when you've got four parties potentially all getting about 25%, yeah. I mean, yeah. all, all bets are off. Um, but in terms of the danger that I see, I think there is a, the, the biggest danger for the Lib Dems actually is if this becomes a polarising election on that other dimension. The left-right dimension. The left-right dimension. If it becomes about austerity and taxation and those kinds of issues, then there is a then there may be a tendency for voters to repolarise yeah. to Labour and Conservative and squeeze out the yeah. Lib Dems. And that's I mean, sort that of the twenty seven. That's sort of the twenty seventeen story, isn't it? In yeah, many ways, exactly yeah. Twenty seventeen story um, and so I think for the Lib Dems the, the best opportunity comes while Brexit remains salient which doesn't look like that's going to end anytime soon um, but also while polling shows the potential for a hung parliament because that's less likely to polarise and more likely to attract people. Oh inter that's interesting because my, my view up until now and I think maybe circumstances are different this time but my view up until now is that the, the the closer election, a general election looks, the harder it is for the Lib Dems. That traditionally, when it's looked like it might be a hung parliament, people have focused more on who will be prime minister, and that has been a leader of Labour versus leader of Tories' choice, and therefore the Lib Dems have got squeezed. So hence, 1992 looked close before polling day, albeit the polls turned out to be a bit wrong, but it looked like, 92 looked like it was going to be close, yeah. 2010 looked like it was going to be close, 2015 looked like it was going to be close, and those are all elections where the Lib Dems got squeezed, 
where the party's done best has been the elections that have looked like, look, we know who's going to be Prime Minister the next, you know, on Friday morning. You can instead worry about who you want as your MP, etc. And therefore, hopefully, think live them instead. Um, but you think that pattern, therefore, will be broken, at least, in so. this election? Or there's a high chance, at least, it will be broken. I'm sure as an academic, you'd have 17 caveats to that. <laughs> but uh, I try not to caveat too much. Yeah. Um, I did see a research paper quite recently that suggested across across different party systems, not just in the yeah. UK, that smaller parties do better where elections are closed. Oh, that's interesting. Um, which is interesting. But I think also... Um, Sorry, can I just ask on that? Is that... Uh, did that allow for whether it's first past the vote, first past the post versus PR system? I think it was looking primarily in uh, European systems, but I have so to go back. So probably to predominantly paper. PR yeah, systems, right? So that might be that might a reason be a for Britain being different. But I think the other thing that's different now is you are looking at two potential mm. prime ministers that actually aren't very popular which makes yeah. a big difference. I feel <laughs> listeners would be disappointed if I didn't add at this point there is a third potential Prime Minister available. I'm, I'm, no, no, I, yeah, I, But I'm saying in terms of yeah. the squeeze, Absolutely, yeah. actually that, that makes a big yeah. difference. Um, and also I think there's the potential there for people to see mm. the Lib Dems as a kind of moderating mm. influence. So actually not only are both the potential leaders, both the leaders of the other parties unpopular, mm. I mean some of them even unpopular amongst their own voters, yeah. never mind people they're trying to convince. Um, but you've also got them moving to extreme positions. And I think in that sense, the idea that, that you know, the Lib, Lib Dems are neither of the other two and also not yeah. moving to an extreme position in economics um, might play quite well. So this might be a, a 1983 rerun, I guess, in that sense, where the alliance did surge in the polls in the second half of the general election campaign not quite enough to overtake Labour and I guess there's probably a little bit of you could argue either way whether in the very last few days of that election the alliance got squeezed then again but certainly for a good chunk of that election it was yes we've got two extremes big space in the middle between them and the alliance surged not quite managing to overtake Labour in the share of the vote and also crucially back then the alliance was much worse at converting votes into seats under first past the post and the Liberal Democrats have learned to be subsequently. Yeah, and obviously the vote has changed, yeah. the, the distribution of the vote yeah. has changed quite a lot because of that concentration of the very Liberal vote into town, into university towns and cities. So it's maybe become easier to work first past the post as well as the party getting better at it. Yes, yeah. I think that's true. Um, well, that sounds, that sounds moderately cheery. <laughs> um, I, I guess just sort of before, before wrapping up, maybe a good question to ask is... You know, I think probably you find, like several other academics now, that your research is sort of looked at and picked over by people active in politics a lot more than would have been the case five or ten years ago, which I think is great, this accessibility through blogs and articles and Twitter and so on, but good, good quality information is more readily available. I, I guess you probably at times get frustrated with the ways people tend to misunderstand uh, mis- you know the sort of research you've done or points that you make. What are the what are the common mistakes or the most infuriating mistakes that you encounter in that respect? What should our listeners watch out for? Uh, trying not to do themselves. So I think the two most infuriating mistakes are assuming everything is on a single dimension and that we can talk about the centre. Yeah. Because we can't. There are two dimensions yeah. and therefore two centres and there are a few people that are on the centre of both. Yeah. But actually not that many and then I think the second most infuriating thing for me is when people talk about the liberal authoritarian dimension as being about age 
when actually right. education is much more strongly connected to it than age, yeah. and similarly Brexit voting. Yeah. So people tend to talk about this as being a new age mm. divide, when in fact it's an old education yeah. divide. Yeah. And, and actually that's reminded me of a point I've heard you make when speaking a couple of times before, which is that when you look at the cross-tabs of opinion polls, they usually will break down the results by age band, but not by level of education. Yes. And so there's this natural tendency to look at those age breakdowns and think that age is telling you something. But in fact, uh, it's really levels of education. And there happens to be a bit of a correlation between age and amount yeah. of education you've received, particularly as university uh, attendance is much more common now than say it was 30 years ago. But underlying that, it's really education rather than age that's the driver. Is that right? That's control for education, mm. most of those age effects, um, in terms of Brexit mm. voting, in terms of liberal authoritarian mm. position, they, they become very, very muted, if not disappear altogether. So for long-term Lib Dem success, we should not only return to abolishing tuition fees, we should make getting a PhD free for people as well, basically. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that's going to help with the education divide we have more generally. <laughs> Anyway, that's been absolutely fascinating, Paula. If people want to find out more about your research, um, remind me, what's your Twitter name, handle? My Twitter handle is um, P underscore Surridge. Um, and if they want to read the longer pieces, yep. Medium is the best place to find them. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time, Paula. No problem. Hi, it's Mark again. A couple of quick postscripts to that fascinating interview with Paula Surridge. I'll be including in the show notes links to her Twitter account and her writings on Medium and also a reminder that you can hear Stephen and myself record an episode live with a special guest talking about whether or not Dominic Cummings is a genius as part of the Podcast Live Politics Festival in London on Saturday, October the 5th. As well as Stephen and I, there are lots of other podcasters recording their shows during the day. Get your tickets. Go to podcastlive.com. That's podcastlive.com, Saturday, October the 5th. Thanks for listening.